Second Chronicles chapter 7 is where we are going to be today. And I wonder as you're there, have you ever uh, completely squandered an, an opportunity? Yeah? Completely fumbled the ball, like you had a golden opportunity and you just wasted whatever opportunity it was. As a, a rugby player in high school, um, I was on the wing of the rugby team, which means all I do is get the ball, take a few steps, and put the ball down, and yay, it's a try. All the other guys do all the hard work. That's the running joke among rugby players. So in one of these games, uh, the ball eventually came my way, and my singular job was to run across the line and put the ball down. But in this particular game, there was a girl I liked sitting in the stands. And I said, I can do this with some flair. So rather than just run and put the ball down, I like run and I'm diving and I have this amazing picture in my head of how wonderful she will love me after this. Only problem is the ball slipped <laughs> and fell. And so I fall on the ground, the ball goes that other way, the whole team loses the game and my captain looks at me like, dude, you had one job. Like, one. It was not a complicated ta- get off my pitch. Right? I don't know why I squandered that opportunity, to be honest with you. But I fumbled the ball, I suffered, and everyone else suffered as a result. In a similar way, our prayer lives can be a little bit like that. We have this golden opportunity to literally come to the one who rules everything we can see and can't see, and we fumble the ball. We don't present these requests to him. We don't bring everything to the Lord in prayer. And my hope today as we work through 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is that God by his spirit would spark in us a fire and a passion for prayer. That's my hope, that we would all have a passion for prayer in view of who God is and what he has done for us and how he beckons us to come to him and pray. I hope we see in these next couple of verses the attitude God's people have toward him when they come to prayer the actions they take in prayer, that they spare no expense when it comes to worshiping God and praying to him, and the admonition or the warnings God gives for prayerlessness and for breaking covenant. So if you have your Bible, Second Chronicles chapter 7, I'll read from verse 1 to 3, after which I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. This is the word of the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 7. <clears throat> As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshipped, and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, would you please help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me? to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, grant by your spirit today that you would work in our hearts so powerfully that we would take every opportunity, passionately grab every opportunity to bring our petitions and requests 
individually and corporately to you. And so now, Lord, what we do not have, would you please give us through your word? What we do not know, would you please teach us through your word? And what we are not, would you please make us through your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Second Chronicles is being written in what's called the post-exilic period. In other words, Israel, made by God, loved by God, given laws to obey, and they were told if you disobey these laws, God will punish you and send you into exile. They disobeyed God's laws, they broke covenant with God, and they went into exile. This book is being written after they're coming back from Israel, exile. They've come back into a land that is a little bit in shambles. It's not what they remember, it's not what they know of. And the, the author of Chronicles is writing this book to help them know what to prioritize, how to keep God first, how to engage with God, how to engage with each other, how to stay obedient and in covenant love with their God as they come back to this land from exile. Against that backdrop, he's, he writes a bunch of stories to remind them of their own history. And in the chapter before this, Solomon has decided he's going to build God's temple and build his house. And this event happens at the dedication of that temple. And that's where we meet Solomon in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles. And not just Solomon, but all of Israel. What I hope you see in this first section of verse 1 to 3, pay attention to the attitude these people have toward God. Okay? You have this dramatic event that shows up immediately after Solomon prays his prayer. Literally, he says, Amen, and fire shows up from heaven, from thin air, and a cloud, a glory cloud, moves in to the temple. It's so thick that the priests can't function. They can't enter this temple. Now, to be, to be honest, that's a scary event, right? Fire just shows up from nowhere in this building right now. You're not sticking around. But Israel had a very different reaction. Their reaction was not only to worship in awe of what had happened and of, of the God who had made it happen, they were grateful. In fact, Scripture says they gave thanks to the Lord and said, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. What is it about this scary event with fire and cloud that would make Israel think, oh, God is for us, God is with us, God is good to us. God's steadfast love, and that phrase steadfast love means covenantal love as their God and his people. What is it about fire and cloud and this seemingly scary event that told them God is for you? Well, the first time this showed up, that's exactly what it signified. Way back in Exodus chapter 40, I'll read it for you, verse 34 and following. In the Exodus, as the children of Israel were moving and as the children of Israel had set up the tabernacle, the place where God would meet with them, here's what scripture says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud, the glory cloud of the Lord, was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Sound familiar? 
The first time they saw it, God was saying, I am your God, you are my people, I will lead you, I am with you. Here's the proof of it, fire and cloud. And as God was with Moses, he's communicating to them now through this dramatic act, I am also with you. As God was with David, I am also with you. Not just Solomon, all of Israel. So Israel, seeing this dramatically, responds by saying, he is good. Essentially, this act made them realize, one, Yahweh is the only living, true, glorious God. Yahweh is the one who brought them out of slavery. Because that's what happened in Exodus. This was a mark that God has taken you out. Yahweh is their covenant God. Yahweh will be with them throughout all their journeys, throughout every season, including this tough season they are in, where they are coming back into the land of Israel. And Yahweh is worthy of all their praise and will accept their sacrifices. That's what was happening here. This was God accepting their sacrifices, accepting their prayers. If we are going to rightly approach God like Israel did, our attitude has to be one that knows the very same things Israel knew. Our attitude is where our actions will tend to spring up from. Right attitudes of God leads to right prayer to God and for each other. It's kind of like in marriage. If we have a right attitude toward our spouse, then even when things are hard, even in conflict, we are able to live with them and relate with them. If you have the wrong attitude toward them, life is very hard. If you just have a problem with them, even anything they say is a problem to you. Good morning, go away. Okay. <laughs> because the lens, the attitude of my heart is the problem. When we know that God is the only true, living, glorious God, our primary prayer is, God, glorify yourself in and through me. When we know that in our hearts and minds, that it is Jesus who brought us out of slavery, our biggest prayer is, God, thank you for saving me. And you'll see that throughout Israel's history. They keep going back to the Exodus. This is the God who brought us out. He brought us out. They're grateful because only he could do it. When we know that God is our covenant God, that we have entered covenant with him, our biggest prayer is, Lord, keep me faithful to you. When we know that he will be with us throughout all our seasons, throughout all our journeys, then we pray, Lord, help me in every season, in every journey. As single people, we pray, Lord, help me stay pure. Lord, help me keep covenant with you. As single people, we can even pray, Lord, grant me a spouse. One a sister friend of mine said, you know, I know Adam was asleep when, he, when Eve was waiting for him, but my Adam seems to be comatose. Like, this guy is not showing up. <laughs> and hence we pray, Lord, give me patience as I wait. For us married people, we pray, Lord, keep me faithful to my spouse, serving and humbly, sacrificially loving them. As parents, we pray, Lord, save our kids, sanctify them, protect them, because we can only protect them to a point anyway. As older people, we pray, Lord, give me relief from the aches and pains of a degrading body. Lord, protect my heart from the very respectable idols of an investment fund and retirement benefits. For the unemployed, we pray, Lord, give me work. Or help me learn whatever it is you're teaching me in this season. You who has promised to journey with me. For the sick and the suffering and the dying, that's what we just prayed for. We lament, God, please come through. God, please heal. Because if you don't show up, 
Nothing's going to happen here. And notice, Israel wasn't just coming to this ceremony because they wanted to have a festivity. Israel was coming here because they were in their coming saying, Lord, be with us. Lord, show up. Lord, let us know that you are with us. And him coming with fire and cloud was answering their prayer. The fact of the matter is, if God didn't come through, this was all an exercise in pointlessness. And that should be the attitude of our hearts. That's not just individually, but corporately. We come to God and corporately ask him, Lord, be with us. Guide us, O thou great Jehovah. That's why we just prayed for Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan. We are praying for God to continue guiding him and making him benevolent toward us. We pray for God to save the nations. Even Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1 said, I know that through your prayers, he who was in prison, through your prayers this will work for my deliverance. This little dinky church in Philippi, God was using their prayers. So ECC, let's, let's, have, let's have a small conversation. What's our attitude toward congregational prayer? Specifically, what's our attitude toward the congregational prayer meeting? In your heart, is your attitude and my attitude, meh, that one's not important. Is your attitude, honestly, this is a bother on my time. When I ask that question, did your inner lawyer arise with the 14 good reasons why you can't come and the evidences to support those reasons? Now, if you feel accused, I'm not accusing you. But it's worth noting that something might be wrong in your own heart and in my own heart if that is what's going on. That if you and I know who is calling us to pray, know how he's calling us to pray, know what he will do through prayer, and that's going on in my soul, that's a good place to step back and say, okay, what's going on in my heart? Because either I've misunderstood that right now, in the present, God is using our prayers to deliver people and save them and essentially rule the world through our prayers. That right now, that's what he's doing. That in the future, God is going to use our prayers to come. When you and I pray, oh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom, come. We are praying, Lord, come, as in the return of Christ. Either we've misunderstood what he's doing now and how we will use our prayers in the future, Either we've misunderstood how our prayers are used to give each other peace or we have misaligned priorities. Our eyes are on something else. Much the same way my eyes were on a, a girl instead of being on the rugby ball. Our eyes are on worldly things and worldly concerns. Maybe we are spending too much time around the wrong practices, around people who are discouraging us from praying, who are making us think prayer is dumb. Prayer is a waste of your time. You need to do something. Maybe we are spending our time around the wrong preachers who are making us think, no, it's the man of God who has mighty prayers. Yet, God calls the whole church to pray. Maybe we are spending our time with just simply wrong priorities. We think there are more important things than talking to the God of the universe. Regardless of whether we have misunderstood what God is doing through prayer, or whether we have misaligned, misfiring hearts, individually and especially corporately, God summons us to pray. So literally, today, 
we can, must, should pray, Lord, give me a passion for prayer. And when I lack that passion, give me a passion for prayer. Our attitude toward God will determine our attitude toward prayer. Praying to him and praying for each other. Praying for each other's joy and peace and love. And our actions spring out of that attitude. And the same thing happened right here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Look at verse 4. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice, offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house to God. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them, the priests sounded the trumpets and all Israel stood. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat. At that time, Solomon held a feast for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, from Lebohamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. In the same way, their attitude and our attitude toward God will determine how we pray to God and for each other. Our actions in prayer reflect our attitudes toward God and can even alter our affections for God. Notice what one commentator called the mind-boggling and utterly lavish nature of these sacrifices. Think about it. 22,000 oxen. 120 thousand sheep. I don't care if you're an engineer and you haven't stepped one day a farm in, in a farm in your life. If I offer you 120,000 sheep, will you take it? Yeah, because that's a lot of money. You won't say, oh no, I don't know what to do with sheep. You'll be like, no, no, bring, I'll figure it out. Right? That's a ton of treasure to be spent. 22,000 oxen, well-maintained instruments, highly skilled servants. The sacrifices were so many Solomon had built this huge bronze altar, but when you have 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, that thing is not big enough to contain the, the offerings. So they had to slaughter outside in the middle of the courtyard. A 15-day ceremony, a large crowd covering a large area. This is a lavish and extravagant event. Why? Why such extravagance? It was not required. Why did they go out of their way to lay such worship and prayer to God? People from 12 different tribes, different socioeconomic strata, but when it comes to prayer, they were wholly united. Reason? Because in view of all that God had done for them, no sacrifice was too big, no praise was too small, and no prayer was unwelcome. In view of God, who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, 
literally parted a sea so that they could walk through it, sustained them in a desert, kept them alive through serpent and sword of enemies, and brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey and settled them. Sorry, what's 120,000 sheep in view of that? What, you want 240? I'll give it to you, God. <laughs> you want 100 million of them? I'll give it to you, God. Because nothing I give is too big an ask in view of what you did for me. That was their attitude. This is why they were united in prayer. This is why the fire and the cloud gave them glad hearts because they knew this God who brought us out of slavery is still with us and in a much greater way. God sent his son into this world for a people who had rebelled against, against him. He chose those he would save from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 would tell us, predestined us to be adopted as his children. Before we had decided what we are going to do with God, God had decided what he's going to do with us. That was to set his love on us and literally send his son, squeeze himself into physical form, incarnate himself in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death. And on that cross, literally, God made him who had no sin to become a sin offering for us, that we who would believe in him would become the righteousness of God. He rose again, gave us his spirit, who not only brought us to life and called us to himself, but gave us the very faith and repentance we needed to believe and turn away from our sin. And now we are headed to the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal temple. In view of that God, remind me, what's too big an ask? What's too big an ask for him? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. For those of us who are redeemed, we are the new covenant community of God. We who are in Christ are the true Israel. For those of us who are in, in Christ, prayer is now not just a duty. It's a delight. We have direct access to God. We get to call him Father. Yeah, this is a delight. What petition wouldn't we bring? Our prayers as a church are one big admission to God that we are inadequate. That one big admission to not only God, to each other, to the unbelieving world, that we are inadequate. And we need divine intervention. If God doesn't show up for the things we are bringing to him, nothing's going to happen here. So church, you recognize that we are the temple that God is building, right? This, this thing over here is a building. The thing can burn down, the thing can be destroyed, doesn't matter. But this, this is a temple. This is an eternal temple. Not just persons, but a people saved by God, an eternal people. And these people are now beckoned by Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church to pray. So do we want to see the nation saved? Then we pray. Do we want to see each other become holy? Then we pray. Do we want to see God send out people from ECC to the ends of the earth with the gospel? Then we pray. Do we want to see God provide for us so that he might do the very thing he has promised to do? 
Then we pray. Amen? Mark it down. Prayer is calling on God to do what he has already promised to do. That's all prayer is. It is calling on God to come through on his own promises. And we not only have that privilege, we have that duty. Now you may say, yeah, but pastor, I just don't have the time. I can't set aside one Sunday a month, one Sunday evening a month, every month. Well, there are some legitimate reasons for that. You're sick and you're in bed. You're caring for someone elderly. You're a mom of very little children. You're elderly yourself. The work has called you and it's a shift that you have to go for right now, which happens a lot in this country. I understand that. But I've found that tends to be the exception, not the rule. I have found, generally speaking, none of us has time. We make time. It's kind of like when you are dating someone who you hope to marry, or those of you who are married, when you were dating your current spouse, you were very busy, but when she would call you, you suddenly have time for dinner. <laughs> you never had time. You made time. We never have time to play with our children. We make time. Question, will we make time as a church to petition the king of the universe to do things that only he can do? Save, sanctify, restore, sustain. And you might say, yeah, but pastor, if I'm being honest, I just don't feel like praying. Right? Okay, sometimes we don't feel like praying. Amen? You guys are putting on your spiritual faces like, no, Lord, I wake up at 3 a.m., pastor, <laughs> to storm the gates of heaven. Okay, for the rest of us normal Christians, sometimes we don't feel like praying. Right? So what do I do when I don't feel like praying? Answer. I just pray. That's it. I, I don't have anything else for you, man. It's like exercise. What do you do when you, feel, when you don't feel like exercising? You exercise. Or else you'll become like those people who say, yeah, you know, I bought a treadmill. It was so expensive. It's in the house. And I'm really trying to lose weight. But I never feel like going on that thing. I don't know why I'm not losing weight. <laughs> well, what do we do when we don't feel like praying? We just pray. We just show up. Now, this doesn't mean you have to have these long, 30-minute, elaborate prayers. No, you can have these really short, really genuine, simple, reverent prayers. Like, Lord, I really don't want to go to work this morning. My boss has been giving me a really hard time. But help me reflect you in some shape or your form. In Jesus' name, I pray. And that's fine. When we come together as a church to pray, no one's looking for anything elaborate. But genuine, reverent, simple. Biblical, yes. It's progress, not perfection. And do you know what happens when we just pray? Joy and peace. As was true of them, is true of us. That when we pray, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, bring all your requests to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That was given to a church telling them to pray that they may have the peace of God and we will have the joy of God. Not because everything is great now and we woke up to rosy circumstances and God just poof, changed our whole lives. No, I, I cannot promise that. That's demonstrably false. 
but we will have joy in knowing God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That in this valley, he is with me and he will never leave me nor forsake me. That's the source of joy. It's internal. It's not external. This wonderful God who has called us to pray, calls us to keep praying. Because often we will say, yeah, but pastor, I've been praying for this issue for so long and nothing is happening. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. See verse 10 there, where it says, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity or the good that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Then verse 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. In your Bibles, there's a little space there, right? So verse 10 to verse 11 is one little gap. It feels like it happened one after the other. Yeah, that gap is 13 years between verse 10 and verse 11. How long do you think Solomon and the rest of Israel prayed for? How long do you think Hannah prayed for a child? How long do you think Israel prayed for a deliverer? How long do you think the disciples waited for Pentecost? How long do we pray? As long as we have breath. Because our prayers might outlive us. The thing we are praying for might happen after we are dead. This God calls us to examine our hearts and our attitudes about him. Because that will inform our prayer life. And our actions spring out of that attitude. But even when our attitudes are struggling, just do the action. And joy will happen. Our attitudes can be affected and altered by that. But pay attention to the last section, where he gives them admonition. He gives them warnings. He gives them promises about good that will happen to them if they pray, but also warns them about what will happen if they break covenant with him. From verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. and heal their land. Verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and his house, rather than this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, 
which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus in this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. God promises to do good to those who trust and obey him, and he promises disaster on those who reject and disobey him. There's two sections here. One of clear promises. The promises are that the prayers will be heard, that their prayers will be accepted, that they have a place to offer sacrifices, that God has chosen to use this place to hear their prayers, that they will be forgiven of sins, that their land will be healed. And right there, we need to talk about the most popular verse in this chapter. Verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. We have to ask, who are God's people? His covenant people. The one he has entered covenant with. Their land is the land he gave them. That's what it says in verse 20. My land that I have given you, a specific land, specific people, his covenant people, his Old Testament covenant people, Israel. So this is not a verse for all our geopolitical states. Because in my country, we read this verse this way. If my people, Kenya, who are called by my name, humble themselves, then I will, and I will, and I'll heal their land, Kenya. Okay? And you can put in India or America or whatever country you want to put there, Colombia, Bolivia, whatever. This is not a promise for a geopolitical entity. It's something much better. It's a promise for those who will enter covenant with God, regardless of which geopolitical entity they come from. This promise is saying that to those who enter covenant with God through his son Jesus Christ, they as his people, will be heard by him. They will be accepted by him. They will be loved and blessed by him. That the new, true Israel is this. The church. It's us. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, this is the invitation of God. That you can be his and he can be yours. There is nothing greater in the world than that. Than God telling you, I want to be yours and I want you to be mine. How? If you turn away from your sin today and trust in him, then you will be God's person and part of God's people. He puts you into a family called the church. And we as a church can quite literally come and beckon him and call him father. He has put his name on us. He's attentive to our prayers. He has chosen to listen to our prayers. In fact, he says his eyes and his heart and his ears are on his people, the church. But we also see not just promises and blessings. We see the opposite. For both king and country, there will be curses for breaking God's law. That the king can plunge the whole nation into curses, and the people who disobey God can plunge the whole nation into curses and can quite literally be cast out of God's sight eternally. The fact is, if we are not worshipping God, 
We are worshiping idols. The fact is, none of us here were born as God's people. We were all born as idol worshippers. But God, who is rich in mercy, saw us in our helpless, hopeless, hell-bound state, sent his son to die for us, that if we turn away from our sin, trust in him, we would be a people with God, with hope. And so again to the unbelievers, I would not be faithful or loving to you if I didn't warn you. You are going to die. It is the most statistically reliable thing in the world. One out of every one human beings die. When you do, Scripture says you will stand before God and he will judge you. The problem is you will stand before God who has been nothing but good to you. And you rejected being his person and being part of his people. And that will mean you are cast out of his sight forever. And we pray you would come. But for those of us who are believers, as part of his people, we also need to be careful. Because we see stuff like that and we're like, yeah, yeah, that's for unbelievers. Mm. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus as the Lord of the church is the God who says when a church is disobeying him, living in open, unrepentant, egregious sin, he will literally, same language, pluck out that church. The image he used is he will pluck out the lampstand. Because King Jesus would rather have no representative in a place than a bad representative in a place called a church. And guys, our prayerlessness is a really bad witness. Think about what we are telling unbelievers when we don't pray. We are telling them we are functional atheists. We are telling them your fake God is like ours. We clearly never consult him for anything. That means he must not exist. A witness like that will very easily be plucked out. No, he beckons us to be a good witness of him. As we corporately pray and believers recognize these guys actually believe this. Their God must be real. We've had visitors come to ECC and be stunned at our prayer meetings. By what we are praying for, by how we are praying, they are convinced God must be among you. I'm not even a believer, but whatever is happening here, your God must be real. And that's the point. So, as, as we think about this issue, as a church, we need to be resolved to pray. It's funny to me, sometimes we pit the word or preaching against prayer. That's like asking me, do you want to go on a plane? When you go on the plane, which one do you want to fly with? The right wing or the left wing? I kind of want both. And through the book of Acts, that's what you see. The church is kept flying through prayer and preaching. She achieves her mission that way. You take out one and we start fumbling. Right? So, a few quick things as we close. Number one, where we have been prayerless in our individual lives and as a church, let's just confess and say, okay, God, you're right. You are proved right when you speak and true when you judge. I have been prayerless. Forgive me for my prayerlessness because it is a sin. But secondly, let's just ask him, Lord, give me a passion for prayer. I don't have one. Give me a passion for prayer, please. Thirdly, we block out time for prayer. What that means is, individually, we block out time, but corporately, you know how you pencil in something in your diary? Yeah, don't pencil in congregational prayer. 
Don't do that. Write it in ink. Write it with a pen. Block it off. Completely. Second Sunday every month, 6 p.m., main hall 2. Blocked in pen. Cannot be erased. And God will surprise you with what he will do in your own soul and in our corporate soul as a church when we block that off. Next, read your Bible. Nothing, in my experience, is as good a fuel for my prayer life as understanding who God is and what he's done for me in Christ. In view of that, my prayer might be weak and lame. But even think about that language. Is a baby's cry weak to their parent? No. Read about this God who loves us and is our father. Next, pray for people. Don't just leave church like a bullet. Hang around. Meet someone. Find out if they're a member. Find out how can I pray for you. And here's how you can be praying for me. In fact, members of ECC, if you have a membership directory, this is a great way to pray for people. Just say, okay, today's the ninth. I'm praying for whoever is on page nine. Who is on page nine? Edgar Inoveso. And it's not an elaborate prayer. It's a simple prayer. Lord, I pray that you strengthen Edgar in his prayer life today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You'll be shocked how at the end of the month, you'll be done praying. Last one. We remember that the God who loved us calls us to love one another. And the best way, one of the best ways of loving one another is praying for one another. We might not always be able to sort out each other's needs, but we can always pray for each other. That God would revive in us a love for him and for prayer, for him, to him, and for each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, O oh God, that you would revive us again, that you would stir us to pray, not just individually, but corporately, and that we would look back at the amazing things you've done in and through us and say, this is the doing of the Lord. It is marvelous in our sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.